Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Last week, we started this topic of predestination. Anytime you use that term predestination, there starts to get some intensity of emotions. But I want to just review real quickly what we talked about last week. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And what we said last week was that the Father had given to Jesus and all, this group, the elect, and we're going to talk about when that happened today, in our, in our time today. But God gave this group of people to Jesus. And what did we say will happen to them? They will come. Not they may come or might come. They will come. But then you go down to verse 44. And what does verse 44 say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So it almost sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself, but he's not. He's basically saying, those whom are elected will come, but there's something preventing them from coming, and that is their sin. So God has to draw them. God has to enable them. God has to bring them to himself, and once God does that, they will indeed come. Why did they come? Because they were chosen to come. So tonight, we're not going to be just in one passage of Scripture, but we're going to be in, in Paul's writings. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be in Ephesians, and we're going to be in Second Thessalonians. But um, this is the golden chain of redemption. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And one of the things we did not talk about last week is the issue of foreknowledge or God foreknowing, but in the order of salvation, because you remember, we're talking about the order of salvation. How does God save sinners? Is there an order? Theologically, logically, what's the order? And so we said the very first thing that happens is something that happens before time. Predestining, foreordaining, foreknowing, choosing, all kind of the same thing. So let's look at Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So Even before predestination, you have a foreknowing. So God foreknew a particular people. Now, when we think of foreknowledge, we think of something that God knows in advance. So some people would say this means that God just knows a decision that you're going to make. Or God knows what events are going to happen. So God has knowledge of things. Well, that's true. God does have knowledge of all things, but that word foreknow means more than just God knowing in advance. It's not just God knows something in advance. When you trace this word to know, 
throughout the scriptures, especially Old, Te- Old Testament, it means to have a particular love for, to love in advance, to know in an intimate way in advance. Now, let me just ask you a question grammatically in this passage of scripture in Romans eight twenty nine. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Is foreknew a noun or a verb? It's a verb, right? So this is not foreknowledge. This is God actively foreknowing. So the question is, well, what does God foreknow? Does God just know in advance decisions? Does God know in advance things? Yes, but look at the grammar very carefully. What does it say? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, It's a verb to foreknow those or them. So here's the question. What does it mean that God foreknew the them or the those? Who are these people that God foreknew? Does it just mean God has knowledge of all people? Well, yes. Does God know what all people are going to choose? Yes. That's not what this word means. Based upon what we learned last week and what we just looked at in John chapter 6, the those that God foreknew are the same people as the all that the Father gave to Jesus. It's just a different way of saying it. All those whom the Father has given to Jesus will come to him. God foreknew these same people. He foreknew them. Now, let me ask you a question based upon total depravity. If God foresaw sinners who are dead in their sins, who are in bondage to sin, would God ever see them choosing him if left to themselves? No. Because what did John say last week? No one can come unless the Father draws them. So there still has to be something that God does to cause them to come. So, To foreknow does not merely mean that God knew people in a general way in the past. It does not mean that God just simply has foreknowledge of all things. That is true, yes. What this word means is that God had a special love he placed on this group. Now, the word to know. Yada. The Hebrew word yada, 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 means to know. Genesis chapter 3, or Acts Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and had a son. Now, does that mean that Adam just had knowledge of his wife? No, what does it mean? Adam knew her in an intimate way. So the Hebrew word yada means to know in an intimate way. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word yada is often translated as to choose. It can mean to choose or to know. Okay, so let me give you some examples of how this Hebrew word yada, to know, 
or to choose or to love is used of God and people. So if you go to Genesis chapter 18, 18 through 19, talking about Abraham. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised to them. I have chosen him. Now, it's very interesting. What's the Hebrew word for I have chosen Abraham? It's the Hebrew word yada, which can mean I have known Abraham. Now, here's the question. Did God know about Abraham? Yes. But the ESV translates this a better way of saying it's not just that God knew about Abraham. God chose and set a special love on Abraham that he did not on others. Now, just a reminder here. Where was Abraham living when God chose him? Anybody remember where he was living? In Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. Does anybody know what Abraham was doing in Ur of the Chaldees? He was a moon worshiper. A moon worshiper. So God could have chosen any moon worshiper in Ur, but he chose one man, Abraham. And he yadad him, okay? He knew him in a very special way. Okay, let me give you another example. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed to you I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Does that just simply mean God Jeremiah? Well, yeah, God knew about Jeremiah, but it's that same word, I chose you. I set my love upon you. I appointed you to be a prophet. I knew you in a special way. So it's talked about choosing Abraham. It's talked about choosing Jeremiah even before he's born. And then it's talking about the nation of Israel. So Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word from the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, does this mean that God did not know of any other families on the earth besides Israel? I only know about the Israelites. I don't know about the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Canaanites, I just know about Israel. No, it's that same word, yada. It's, it's used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Only you have I chosen. Only you have I known. Only you have I loved. So this word to know in the Old Testament means to love, to choose, to select in a very special way. And you see how God did this to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God says, nation of Israel, I've chosen you. Why did I choose you? What's the answer? Because I wanted to. Well, why did you want to? Because I loved you. You only, Israel, out of all the nations. I could have chosen the Canaanites. I could have chosen the Moabites. 
I could have chosen the Perizzites, but I chose you, Abraham, first, and then through you, a mighty nation. So, to know in the Old Testament means to love or to choose in a very intimate way. <clears throat> now, put the word for in front of know. What does for know mean? Does it merely mean to know about something in advance? Yes, but there's more to it. It means to choose or to love in advance. Now, you may ask the question, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. So what's the difference between God's foreknowing and God's predestining? Is there a difference? There's a little slight difference, okay? God foreknowing his people in eternity past means that he, he has a special love, electing love that he set upon them. He chose to be in a covenant relationship with his people in a very intimate way. That's foreknowing. Predestining speaks more about the preordained plan that God has determined will come to pass in that whole idea that if I've given these people to the Son, what will happen? They'll come. If I've foreknown these people, what will happen? They will predestined to, to come. It will, it will happen. It's a, it's a done deal. So God is sovereign in his choice of certain individuals to be saved. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All, this is Jesus speaking, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the question becomes, does the Son choose to reveal himself or to the Father to everyone? The question would be, okay, Jesus has a select group that he's going to, to bring to himself. He's going to give life to whom he will. John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, at this point I want to stop and I want to give you the two views of foreknowledge, or the two views of election. Okay? So let me give you names to these. Okay? The first view is called the foreknowledge or conditional election. And I'm going to explain why it's called conditional election. So let me define this view for you. <clears throat> because both views, let me just say, both views believe that the choosing of God happened in eternity past. It's not the question, did God choose people in eternity past? The question is, how did God do it? What was the basis of God's choice? Okay, so here's the, here's the first view, the foreknowledge view or the conditional election view. Okay, so in this view, in eternity past, God looked down through the corridors of time and foresaw in advance who would accept or reject Jesus, and based upon what God saw, he then elected that person to salvation. So let me give you an example, okay? It is 1985, and it's the last night of youth camp. 
And Sally is a 14-year-old teenager who's been at camp all week. And the music is awesome. The pastor preaches a powerful sermon. There's an altar call at the end of the worship service. She goes down front and she prays to receive Christ into her life and to accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior. This view says that in eternity past, God looked down upon that moment in time. God saw or foresaw what she would do using her free will to choose. And based upon what God saw, he then ratified her choice by choosing her. Okay, her brother, Sam, same night, same youth camp, he lives his entire life and never trusts Christ for salvation. God looks down upon his life and never sees him trusting Jesus. So therefore, God does not choose Sam because God never sees Sam choosing him. So in this first view of foreknowledge or foreknowing, God ratifies or God puts his stamp of approval on the person's decision. It's not in the sense of sovereign election because God reacts to what he sees. And human beings are in the driver's seat on their choice to believe in Jesus. So, this, so why is it called conditional election? Because there's some conditions that God has to see or there's some conditions that a sinner has to meet before God chooses them. What are those conditions that, that a sinner has to meet before God chooses them? What does God have to see? God has to see them using their free will choice to accept him. And once God sees that, he then can elect them based upon them meeting the conditions of choosing him. Does that make sense? It's a conditional election. The conditions have to be met in order for God to choose. What are those conditions? The person has to hear the gospel, they have to repent, they have to believe, and once God sees that, in eternity past, then he can say, okay, I can choose them because they met the conditions. It's conditional election. It's based upon humans meeting the conditions of repentance and faith, God foreseeing that, and then God choosing them based upon them choosing him. Let's just say I reject that view. And it's okay if you hold to that, but that's not the view I hold to. Let me give you the second view. I think it's the more biblical view. And we'll unpack that tonight. The second view is called unconditional election. Okay. Why is it called unconditional election? Because there are no conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to choose them. And let's just ask the question, could there be any conditions a sinner could meet in order for God to choose them if they're dead in their sins? No, they can't. So this view simply states that God decides to save a great number of people, millions upon millions, and there's nothing in them that moves God to choose them. He simply does it because it's his good pleasure to do so. So let me give you two quotes from two scholars that kind of tell you, the, tell you why, well, this is the difference between conditional and unconditional election or foreseen faith in sovereign election. So John Murray says this, For it is certainly true that God foresees faith. He, he foresees all that comes to pass. 
The question would then simply be, whence proceeds this faith which God foresees? And the only biblical answer is that the faith which God foresees is the faith he himself creates. Is God going to see anybody using their faith that God didn't first create in them to have that faith, is what his argument is. Okay, let's talk about John Stott. If God predestined people because they're going to believe, then the ground of their salvation is in themselves and their merit, instead of in him and his mercy, whereas Paul's whole emphasis is on God's free initiative of grace. So, the golden chain of redemption, we'll keep coming back to this in Romans 8. Let's just read it again. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, and what does foreknew mean? It's a verb. It's not just God has foreknowledge. Yes, it's for, he foreknew. And what does that mean to forelove, to forechoose? Those, those whom he foreknew, not actions, not decisions, but actual people, just by the way, does it say there in verse 29 that God foreknew actions or decisions? No, it's he foreknew actual people. Does it mean God just knew about these people or is it more God chose these people? So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the golden chain of redemption in that it starts in foreknowledge and it ends in our going to heaven. And every step along the way, it's the same group of people that are being chosen, that are being called, that are being justified, that are being glorified. There's no breaks in the chain. Okay? So, let's take a little journey through the Bible. And let's look at some key passages of Scripture that teach the doctrine of predestination or election. So let's turn to, we're going to backtrack a little bit, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. I'm giving you the key passages in the Bible that teach this doctrine. Because remember when I said last week, some people will say, I don't believe in predestination, or I don't believe God chooses people, or I don't believe this. I'm like, well, you've got to believe something about it because it's, it shows up in the Bible. The question is not, does the Bible teach election? The question is, how does God choose? Why does God choose? On what basis does God choose? All right. Let me give you the background to Acts chapter 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And he goes with Barnabas to a town called Pisidian Antioch. And as was Paul's custom, he would go into the synagogue first because that's where Jewish people were that would have an Old Testament understanding. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches, basically preaches an expository sermon on the Old Testament and the people get really excited and they want to hear more. The Jews get jealous and say, we want you out of town, but the people come back the next day and they say, we want to hear more of the, the message. And so what ends up happening is not only do Jews get saved, but Gentiles get saved. And so Luke, who writes the, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote Acts, he gives a commentary on what happened after Paul preached the Gospel. They're having fun out there, aren't they? They're excited about predestination, I know that. No. <laughs> they're probably talking about their boyfriends and girlfriends as they're playing those games. So. All right, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So let me ask you the question. Which came first? Are you, did you believe and then become appointed to eternal life? Or were you appointed to eternal life first and then therefore you believed? Okay, the reason they believed was that they were already appointed to eternal life. In the sense that they were already among the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. They were appointed. Now, I don't want to go into the grammar here, but the way the grammar works is that the appointing is the cause or the source of their believing. There's two different Greek verbs in there. The one appointed is in the perfect tense, the one believed is in the aorist tense. They're two past tense verbs. But the, the way it's structured in the grammar is this. The reason why they believed at a point in time was because they were already appointed or predestined to do that. Now, here's the question. Were they ordained to believe or were they ordained to eternal life and thus believe? What is, read it carefully. What does it say? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to what? Appointed to eternal life, believed. What were they appointed to? What were they predestined to? Eternal life. And because of that happening, what happened? They believed. Now let's just put this back in context with John. All that the Father gives me, all that were appointed to eternal life, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that were appointed to eternal life believed. It's teaching the same exact thing, just using different language. Why do you believe? Why do you come? Because you were appointed to. You were predestined to. You were forechosen to. So, in other words, it's this. The faith is the fruit of their election, not the other way around. Some people try to change the language here to get away from it. Some people will say something like this. Well, I know what this text says. <clears throat> the, the, the text says, I believe and thus I was disposed or appointed to eternal life. I actually have had podcast arguments and I've had debates on YouTube with a group of they're called provisionists, and bless their hearts if they're watching tonight. Love you, provisionists. You guys know who you are. You've heard this a million times. I've heard your arguments a million times. But the provisionists, these Southern Baptist provisionists, will say that these Gentiles put themselves in a position to be predisposed to believe, and when the gospel came to them, they believed because they were already predisposed to believe. But is that what the passage says? They were predisposed to believe. No. It says, I was first appointed to eternal life, and thus I believed. Now, appoint. Does anybody have a different translation open in Acts 13? Does anybody have a different word besides appointed? It can mean different things. It can mean designate, appoint, assign, ordain, or even predestined. But I found something interesting. One of the key New Testament scholars of the 20th century was a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce. 
probably one of the best New Testament scholars, he found papyrus evidence of what this word ordain meant. And the word means to inscribe or enroll like in the book of life, to have your name inscribed. So he, he says, if you go back and look at some ancient papyrus, this word appointed could also mean to be like written in the book of life. So let me ask you a question. Where do we find your name written in the book of life? Well, it's in Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell upon the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast. Everyone whose name had not been written when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, you may have heard this growing up from a pastor. When you walk that aisle and you trust Jesus for salvation, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And you better make sure it's not written with a pencil because if you lose your salvation, it could be erased out of the... No. When you become a Christian, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Is that what this text says? When was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen? Before the foundation of the world. When were you appointed to eternal life? Before the foundation of the world. When were you given by the Father to Jesus? Before the foundation of the world. When were you foreknown and predestined? Before the foundation of the world. And because of that, what happened at a point in time? You believed. You came. You trusted. So all those who were appointed, predestined, enrolled in the Lamb's book of life to eternal life believed. They didn't believe so as to become in the Lamb's book of life. They did not believe so as to be appointed. They were already appointed, and then they believed. Now, you keep asking me this question, or you don't ask this. I, I keep bringing this up. Okay, you keep talking about before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Pastor Sean, where do you find it that we were chosen before the foundation of the world? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's where we're going next. Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, I'm showing you all the verses where these words show up. So there's no confusion over... Again, let me, just state, let me say this while you're turning to Ephesians. You, don't not, you do not necessarily have to agree with my understanding of what the Bible teaches about these things. But, if you're going to disagree, you need to give me the reason why you're disagreeing, and you need to interact with the texts that talk about predestination. I had a person come into my office one time, and they said, I don't believe in predestination. And I said, well, okay, then how do you deal with these passages that talk about, I just don't believe in predestination. No, that's not a good answer, I said to this person. You've got to tell me why you don't believe in it or why your view is different than my view, but you can't just come in here and say, I don't believe it. I would much, I'd have much more respect for you if you came into me and said, here's my understanding of this text about predestination. I've thought it through. I've prayed it through. I've studied it, and this is the conclusion I've come to, and it's different than yours, but I stand by it because here's my biblical reasons. I would say, God bless you. That's wonderful You've defended your faith. But to just say flat out, I don't believe it, personally, is not a good answer to me because the word is there. Predestined. You've got to deal with it. So, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Let's start back in verse 3, by the way. 
Actually, just let me, let me let you know something here. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, you guys see verses 3 through 14? That is one long honking sentence in the Greek text. It's the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. It's one sentence. Paul just kept writing, writing, writing. It's like there's no punctuation. There's no periods. It's just one long sentence. So let's see what he has to say. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, that's the thesis. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay, Paul, what are those spiritual blessings that God's blessed us with? The rest of that sentence. And it's Trinitarian in nature. Starts with the Father. How has the Father blessed us? Goes to the Son. How has the Son blessed us? And then it ends with the Holy Spirit. And then three times in there, it also says to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul is laying forth a Trinitarian understanding of our salvation, Father, Son, Spirit, to the praise of his glorious grace. And the first thing he focuses on is what the Father has done. What did Jesus say in John 6? All that the Father gives me will come to me. What does it say here? Verse 4. Even as he, that's the Father, chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in verse 4, you have chose us. Verse 5, you have predestined us. And then in verse 4, it says it happened before the foundation of the world. So that's where we get the fo- before the foundation of the world. Or some translations say before the creation of the world. So before the world was created, in eternity past, if you will, God made the choice. Now, the context of this sentence demands unconditional election. Why? Are there any demands or prerequisites that a sinner has to meet in order for God to choose them? Does it say, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world because he foresaw that we would use our faith to believe in him? Does it say anything like that? Are there any conditions that we have to meet in order for God to choose? No. God chose us simply because he chose us. And he chose us to be what? Holy and blameless before him, which assumes what? God's choice assumes the sinfulness of humans who were fallen in Adam. So before time, when God made this choice, what did God already have in mind? The fall of Adam and Eve, the fact that we would be fallen sinners, the fact that when God made the choice, God did not say, I'm choosing you because you're holy and blameless. No, I'm choosing you because you are unholy and blameworthy. So in spite of our sin, God chose us, and there were no conditions for us to meet in order for God to choose us. God did not look down the corridors of time to see our faith. He didn't look at our choice. He didn't look at our obedience. He didn't look at our repentance. He didn't look at anything we did. God chose us, and this text says, what did God see? Unholy, blameworthy people who he would choose to be holy and blameless and adopted as his children. 
So that's where we get, <coughs> excuse me, before the foundation of the world. Now go down to verse 11. Again, this is all part of that one sentence. Paul works overtime and gives three Greek words to, to remind us of this. In him, we've obtained an inheritance. And here's the word again. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Go back to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons to Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. Purpose, will. In verse 11, you've got purpose, counsel, and will. You've got three Greek words there. According to the purpose of him who works out all things, according to the counsel of his will. So Paul is using three different Greek words to show this was God's plan, this was God's purpose, this was God's will, this was God's choice. This is what God chose to do. There were no conditions you could meet. There was nothing that you had to do. It was simply God's purpose. Now we're going to deal with objections here in just a little bit. So the question you may ask was, why did God choose people and why did God not choose other people? And the only answer you can give, and we'll, we'll address this later on, is what does this text say? It was according to the purpose of his will. Now, we may not understand that, but he does all things for the purpose of his will. So Ephesians tells us the time. It happened before the foundation of the world. He chose us. He predestined us. It was according to his will, according to his plan, according to his purpose. And by the way there, verse 11 says God works out all things according to the plan, purpose of his will. There's nothing that happens that God doesn't work out according to his plan and purpose. All right. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we'll do 13 and 14. And I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard because I'm going to explain why here in just a moment. I have it on the screen. I don't have my New American Standard here. But I'm going to explain to you. We'll read it out of the ESV. Well, I, yeah, let's just read it out of the ESV and, then I'll, and I'll show you the New American Standard and, and, and why there's a difference. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. I'll read it out of the ESV first. And then I'll read it out of the New American Standard that will be on your screen. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, notice that the ESV says chose you as first fruits. The New American Standard says... We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that you were called through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm going to address this in just a moment. Why is there a difference between first fruits and why is there a difference between from the beginning? Why do some translations use different words? But let me just deal with the word choose. What, both translations said this, we should give thanks to God because God has what? Chosen you. The 
The word Paul uses here for choose is different than the word he used in Ephesians. This word, it's almost a little bit more powerful. It means God chose you for himself. It conveys the idea in the Old Testament of choosing you as a treasured possession. In other words, it conveys the idea that God got great pleasure and joy out of choosing you. It was God's good pleasure and delight to do so. You were his unique treasure that he chose to himself. Now, let's just remember, unconditional election. There were no conditions you had to meet in order for God to choose you. You did not deserve to be chosen. You could not earn to be chosen. There was nothing in you that moved God to choose you. So for God to choose you for himself and take great delight in it is an amazing thing because there was nothing in us that moved God to do that. Now, what does it mean from the beginning? The ESV and the NIV use the term first fruits. The New American Standard and the New King James Version use the phrase from the beginning. I'm not going to bore you, but there's a textual variant and you can come up to me and talk ab about textual variants later, but, but basically it's like this. In the Greek, if it's one long word, it's first fruits. But if you take half the word and break it up and put it into two words, it's from the beginning. So scribes, when they were translating or transcribing, some manuscripts have all one word, some manuscripts have it broken up. It's the same it's like a Greek word that can, it can mean two things if it's broken up. It can mean first fruits if it's all together, or it can mean from the beginning if it's, if it's broken up. So it really doesn't affect the meaning. What it's saying, I believe, from the beginning is to take it to the idea that from the beginning means before the foundation of the world. God chose you before the foundation of the world, from the beginning of time. Now, Here's where this verse is very clear. If you have your ESV open, just let's look. Don't, don't get um, confused about first fruits are from the beginning. It basically means about the same thing. But notice, we give thanks to God. Why? Because God chose you. Chose you what? To be what? Saved. Okay, how does this work itself out? How does this election work itself out in time? Okay, he chose you to be saved. How did that come about? Notice what it says there. Through, okay, how did this election to be saved happen? Through, and the order is important here, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How were you saved? Well, because you were chosen to be saved. Well, how did it work itself out in time? Sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Let's, let's deal with those two. What is sanctification from the Spirit? And why is that first in the order? It means to be set apart as holy. This refers to that internal cleansing or change that makes you go from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. How did that happen to you? We'll talk about this in a few weeks, maybe next week. Verse 14 answers it. To this he called you through our gospel. 
you were called. And when the call came, you answered the call. There is an external call that goes out. And we'll talk about the difference between an external call and an internal call. But there is an internal call that goes to God's elect that becomes the source of the faith. So when the call comes to you, the Holy Spirit does that sanctifying work in you, and then what do you do as a result? You believe in the truth. All that the Father gives me come to me. You were chosen to be saved through sanctification and belief in the truth. So here's the order that we've been seeing in all these verses. Before time, God chose sinners to be saved. At a point in time, the gospel was preached to you in the general call. The call goes out either when you're under the preaching of the sermon in a worship service or whether you're listening to somebody tell you the gospel as a friend, however you hear it. Then the Holy Spirit internally and effectually called you since you were chosen that you would believe. And when the Holy Spirit did this, He did an inward call on you. He sanctified you. He cleansed you. He took out your heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh. We'll talk about this later, but I want to introduce it now. Why did you believe? Because you were chosen to believe. Why did you believe? Because you were called to believe. Why did you believe? Because you were drawn to believe. Okay, what had to happen to you before you believed? God had to do a work in your heart to make you willing to believe. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God has to replace that dead, stony, lifeless heart. Okay, Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord has to open your heart to be able to pay attention, to hear. God has to do that. You don't open your own heart. God does it. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So you were made alive. You can't make yourself alive. God has to make you alive. So here's the order again. Why did you believe? Why did you come? Okay, let's ask the question. What does John's gospel tell us? Why did you come? Because you were drawn. Why did you come? Because the Father gave you to Jesus. Okay, let's look at these passages we've been looking at tonight. Why did you come? Well, first, God sovereignly chose you to be saved. Why did you come? Because the gospel was outwardly preached or presented or preached to you so that you could hear and understand the truth. Why did you come in faith? Because the Holy Spirit did an internal and effectual calling that brought life, that brought regeneration, that changed you, that freed your will. And then why did you come? Because you personally believed in Jesus, because you were given the gift of faith. And you got those two passages there, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And then Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay. Now, 
I think I have six objections that I want to address tonight. You can get to this. Like, what are the objections? I protest. I have a question. What about this? Well, hopefully I get to all your objections tonight. If not, we'll, we'll carry them over to next week. So here's the common objections to unconditional election. And again, what is unconditional election? Unconditional election is the view that there are no conditions you have to meet in order for God to save you. He simply does it because he chose to do it, and it's his purpose alone in doing that. So here's the biggest objection. Objection number one. Unconditional election makes God unfair. Why would God choose some and not choose others? Okay, let's just ask the question a different way. Do you want God to be fair? And do you want God to be just? If you plead for God to be just and fair, what would all of us deserve? God, please be fair. Okay? Then all of us go to hell. <laughs> if that's the way we want to play the game. <coughs> God is under no obligation to give grace to anyone. See, here's the assumption that people often bring to the table on this discussion on predestination. They automatically assume that somehow we deserve it. Or somehow God's obligated to give it. And God must be obligated to give it to everybody equally. Now, we may not like that, but we come to the assumption in our human-centered that somehow I deserve it, I'm worthy, and God has to give it. And the Bible teaches that God is under no obligation to give it. As a matter of fact, if you look back through the history of Israel, was not God making discriminations in his choice from the very beginning? Did God provide a sacrificial system and day of atonement to the Egyptians or the Canaanites the way he did for the Israelites? Did God give them a method of, 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 of covering their sins to the other nations? No. Did God choose every single person to be the father of the nation of Israel, or did he choose one man, Abraham? Did God treat the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites in the same way as he did the Israelites? Did Jesus choose every Gentile? I mean, not Gentile. Did Jesus choose every um, fisherman in Galilee to be part of his disciples, or did he choose a specific 12? So here's the, here's the, here's the, the teaching. From out of the mass of guilty humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them what do the rest get? They get justice. Now let's talk about this, this, this statement. <coughs> From the mass of guilty humanity. If you don't start, sorry, I'm struggling with a little bit of <coughs> a cough tonight. <coughs> if you don't start with the premise that all humans are guilty, sorry, <coughs> if you don't start with the premise that all humans are guilty and deserving of hell, then you're starting at the wrong place. God is under no obligation to give mercy to anybody. Okay? So, what does everybody deserve? Justice. What if God chooses to give some mercy? What do the other people get that don't get mercy? They get what everybody deserved in the first place, justice. But here's what we can't say. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. 
The saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. But here's the point. Nobody gets injustice. Some get what they deserve as sinners, and others get mercy. And God has the right to determine who gets mercy and who gets justice. So you can't say it's unfair because God's not giving, God is not being unjust in saving some and leaving others to their sin because all of us deserve justice and for God to show mercy to a great number of them, he's not showing injustice at all. He's showing mercy to some whereas everybody deserves justice. I've got a long quote here from Charles Spurgeon, but I'll, I'll save it because I think we're going to run out of time. Okay, objection number two. If unconditional election is true, then God's choice must be arbitrary for no specific reason. There must not be a reason why God, why does God choose some and God not choose others? They're, they're, it's just arbitrary, it seems random, it seems like there's no real rhyme or reason why God does it. Okay, we just looked in Ephesians. What was the basis for God's choice? The purpose of his will. So, unconditional election does not ground the reason in foreseen faith of the sinner, but in the eternal purpose of God. Just because God doesn't tell us why he chooses some and chooses others doesn't mean that God has a purpose in doing what he's doing. He just doesn't tell us what that purpose is, but he does everything for a purpose. So all we're saying is, is that whatever reason it may be that God chooses some and not others, it's not contingent on foreseen faith or conditions being met by the sinner. Okay? So number one, it makes God unfair. Number two, it's just random, it's capricious, there's no purpose to it. Number three, if unconditional election is true, then God must be to blame for sinners ending up in hell. Now, let me just say this. No matter what view of election you hold to, you can't get God off the hook unless you deny something about God and his character. So let's just start with this premise. Do you believe that God is perfectly omniscient and has exhaustible foreknowledge of all things? Does everybody believe that? That God knows all things? Okay, and he's omniscient. Okay, then you have to answer the same objection. You, you can't get God off the hook no matter how you do it, if God knows all things. Now, if you, you can play the game, or there's some people called open theists that say God does not know all things, and God does not know the future, and God's not omniscient. And, and, that, and that's the logical end of, of getting, uh, basically their view goes all the way to the far end of the spectrum saying that um, God doesn't know all things. But if you hold to the traditional historic belief that God knows all things, and God's omniscient, then you're, you're, cho you're, you're, you're faced with a choice. Because here's the problem. If God has exhaustive foreknowledge, and he's the all-powerful creator, then God creates at least some people whom he knows will never come to faith. Thus, he knows they will end up in hell if they're created. 
With this knowledge, he creates them anyway. Why would God create a person he infallibly foreknows will end up in hell? I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that God knows all things. So, whichever you believe, foreseen faith, unconditional election, conditional election, whichever you way you believe, in the end, God is ultimately responsible for the lost being lost. Either through choosing not, or not choosing them, or setting up a world where they choose themselves to go to hell, and he created it anyway, knowing that they would. But here's the problem that you would have to say. Because I've had this argument with people before. Your view says God sovereignly chooses some to be saved and others not to be saved. That puts, that blames God for, that makes God unfair and, and blames God for people going to hell and, and people really have no choice in the matter. Okay, what's the foreseen faith view? God looks down through the corridors of time and sees what a person's going to do, and based upon what God sees them doing, he then chooses them. Well, here's the problem with that view. You still have a problem with that view. Because what does God see? God sees them rejecting him. And what does he do? God could have, if he saw a person choosing to reject him, God could have intervened and saved and chosen that person and overrode that person's free will or done something to make that person come to faith or orchestrate people or, or do something to get them to heaven, but God did not. He foresaw them rejecting him and let them go their way. So either way, you either have God sovereignly choosing some and not others or God seeing some reject him and him allowing them to go their own way and God creating a world where he knows they're going to reject him and creates it anyway. So you can't get God off the hook either way you look at it, if you believe God knows all things. Because if God knows all things, he knows who's going to accept, who's going to reject, and either he chooses some and not others, or he allows some not to choose him and doesn't do anything to intervene to make them come to him and creates a world where they're going to not choose him and allows that world to be created anyway. Is that, I'm getting kind of philosophical here, but does that make sense? Sort of. Okay. Let's move on. Objection four. Unconditional election makes God out not to be loving. A loving God would not choose some and others pass over. A loving God would choose everybody. A loving God would allow everybody the chance to go to heaven. This may sound difficult for you to hear, but we even have this in our human love. God loves all people, but not in exactly the same way. Let me, let me say it this way. I love my wife, Dawn, in a very special way that I love no other woman. Now, if I were here to say on Sunday morning, I love all the women in Emmanuel in exactly the same way I love Dawn, what would you think of me? He's either a lustful polygamist or there's something wrong with him. What's going on here? No, in human terms, I as a husband have a unique love for my wife that I don't have for any other woman. But I can say in the same breath, I love the women in Emmanuel as sisters in Christ. I, just, I love them, but I love them in a different way. 
I have a specific and special sacrificial love for Dawn that's different than any other woman, but I still love other women, but just not in the same way. So I can love, but have a discriminate, special love. So even on a human level, as a husband, I'm allowed to have that type of love. God does the same thing. He loves all people, but he has a special, discriminate, electing love that he's put on those people that he's chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 5, 25-26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the washing by the washing of water with the word. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church in a special, unique way and gave himself up for her in a sacrificial way, the same way a husband specifically and intimately and selectively loves his wife. Then you might say, okay, Pastor Sean, what about John 3.16? John 3.16 proves that election is not true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That doesn't prove one, one view or the other. Okay, So, does God love the world? Yes. Did God give his only son? Yes. If you believe in Jesus, will you go to heaven and not perish? Yes. The word world in John's gospel and in 1 John and 2 John and even the book of Revelation, the word cosmos or world can mean up to seven different things depending on the context. So it doesn't necessarily mean every single person who ever lived. It, it really stresses in John 3.16 not the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. But regardless of how you view the world world, who alone is saved? Is everybody saved? What does John 3.16 say? What's the qualifier in John 3.16? Whoever believes. The believing ones. Now our English translations have translated whosoever to make it flow more naturally, but the original Greek, it's a participle. Those who are the believing. Those are the believing ones. So let's ask the question, who are the believing ones? Who will believe? What did John already tell us? Who will believe? Who will come? Who are the believing ones? Well, based on what we've looked at so far, and John especially, who believes? It's those that the Father has given to the Son. So what we're saying is God loves those who are His in a way that He doesn't love those who are not His. Does this mean that God automatically hates the reprobate? No. It means that God shows common grace to lost people by allowing them breath, life, a job, sunlight, health. He shows a lot of mercy and grace, but not saving grace. Okay, here's objection number five, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but I hear this one a lot. Doesn't Calvinism, and I shouldn't have used that word, doesn't Calvinism teach that God's predestinate, God predestines only a small group to heaven and then damns the rest of humanity to hell. Okay, you guys believe that God only elects a small group of people. Okay, my question is this. Where in the Bible does it ever say that it's a small group? 
I mean, it says the road is narrow if you find it. But when I read Revelation chapter 7, and you see these people that are emerging in heaven, Revelation 7, 9 through 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no, number, that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great number that no one could count. So here's the question. How big is the elect? It's a great number that no man can count. Well, what's the number? I don't know. But it's a great number. But it's a fixed number. Why is it a fixed number? Because God chose before the foundation of the world. It's not like God's choosing as it happens. It's a fixed number, but it's a great number. Okay, this was asked last week by Troy, but I want to bring it up again. Objection number six. This is, a co- this is a common one too. If it's already determined by God who is elect, then why should we pray for the lost and why should we evangelize the lost? God's got it all figured out. Why do we need to pray? Why do we need to share the gospel? Let me give you some reasons. I answered a little bit of this last week, but let's, let's go into a little bit more detail. First, God commands that we evangelize lost people. Regardless of whether, what we believe about the elect or the non-elect, God tells us to go preach the gospel to all creation. So Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So regardless of what we believe about election, we're called to go into the whole world, preach to everybody, the whole creation. Matthew 28 19 and 20, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All the nations, all the world, preach indiscriminately. Go into every place and preach. So number one, regardless of your view of election, we're commanded to go preach the gospel. We're not commanded to go figure out who the elect are. We're commanded to go preach the gospel. But second... God uses means to bring about his ends, the salvation of his elect. Okay, so whatever you believe about election or predestination, the fact remains that evangelism is necessary because no man can be saved without hearing the gospel. How is a person saved? They have to hear the gospel so they can repent and believe. Election takes place, let me make this very clear. Election takes place before time. Salvation takes place in time. You are elect unto salvation, but you're not saved at a point in time until you hear the gospel and believe. Now, if you're elect, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen under God's timetable. And it's going to happen through a human messenger normally. But anybody that's going to be saved has to hear the gospel and make the choice to be saved. The question is, why did they get saved? you got two choices. They came to faith because God chose them to come to faith, or they came to faith because God foresaw that they would come to faith, and they used their free will to choose him. But regardless of what view you hold to, nobody's saved without repenting and believing. All that the Father gives me will what? Will come. How do they come? they got to hear the gospel. Now, third, and this is what brings me encouragement as a pastor, especially when you don't see a lot of results or you 
kind of get discouraged. Election makes our evangelism more hopeful and gives us greater confidence that our efforts will not be in vain and that God will save his elect. Our missionary friends that came a few weeks ago, I remember the first time we were in South Asia. Some of you have been there before, and I think it was just a small group of us. Maybe it was the first time I'd gone to, to that area, and we're driving. Some of you know that drive, that three-and-a-half-hour drive up. And I'm in the van, and um, I'm talking to both of our missionary guys, um, and, and we started talking about this doctrine of predestination. We're trying to feel each other out on it because, of course, I already knew where I was. So I'm like, these are new guys, and I don't know what their theology is, and is this relationship going to work? Because I need to know what they believe about predestination. So we started talking about it, and um, happily, they believe the same thing we do. But um, both of them said this. They said, we would be the most helpless and hopeless and frustrated people in this area if we did not believe in election because we believe sin and depravity and idolatry is so strong here I have no persuasive ability to share the gospel it has to be God doing a work of grace it has to be because God has chosen them because the depravity and the idolatry and the blindness is so deep here that it has to be God alone that does it so when you go What's the confidence? Okay, here's the confidence. All that the Father gives me, what? Will come. How do they come? When you share the gospel with them. Does that mean they're always going to come? No. Does that mean it's gonna, they're going to come the first time they share with you? No. But if they are truly a sheep, they will hear the voice of the shepherd and they will come. And it's not because you were so persuasive or you were so creative or you were so articulate. You may have mumbled over your words and got the presentation wrong, but your confidence is not in your ability. Your confidence is in God. Also, let me ask you this. When you pray for a lost person, what are you praying for? What terms, what terms do you use when you pray for a lost person? Lord, Please allow this person to use their libertarian free will to not resist you so that they can choose to come to you in faith. Does anybody pray that prayer? Even Arminians don't pray that prayer. When Arminians pray, they pray like Calvinists. What do they pray? Lord, open their eyes. Lord, soften their hearts. Lord, do a work of grace. Lord, bring conviction. What are you asking God to do? You're asking God to do something that only God can do. So even when you're praying, you're using prayer as a means for God to, to do only what God can do. Uh, there's a great book by J.I. Packard called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Let me read to you this quote from him. He says, you pray for the conversion of others. In what terms do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think so. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will, quite simply and decisively, save them. That he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. So why pray for lost people? Because it's God's means of bringing them to salvation. God uses means to accomplish 
his ends. Now, we've been very theological and philosophical and very high theology today in predestination, so let's bring this down to reality. What should this doctrine produce in us? And let me give you a quote from Calvin that that gives two answers. And then I'll leave it at that tonight and we'll ask questions. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this is what John Calvin says. We shall never feel persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the free mercy of God as its fountain until we are made acquainted with this eternal election. It is plain how greatly ignorance of this doctrine detracts from the glory of God and hinders true humility. He's basically saying we'll never understand our salvation until we understand predestination. And when you understand predestination, you understand two things. Number one, the doctrine of election displays the glory of God. The doctrine of of election produces in us humility. He's saying the exact opposite. When you don't understand the doctrine of predestination, you really don't understand the glory of God. And if you don't understand the doctrine of predestination, you really don't understand the need to be humble that God would save you. So, the doctrine of predestination should always lead to worship, and humility, not pride, not arrogance, not frozen chosen that I'm better than somebody else. It should lead to joy, humility, awe that God would save me when he did not have to. And it's all to his glory, not to mine, because I did not deserve it. So, God could have left you in your depravity and not chosen you and he would not have given you injustice he would have given you exactly what you deserved but he gave you mercy and for that you praise him with humility so what questions do you guys have tonight I know we went kind of long but I'm sure this is going to bring up some controversial questions that I may not have answers to Next week we're going to deal we're going to deal with this one more week because I'm going to talk about we're going to talk about Romans 9 next week which is the hardest passage of scripture in the Bible to come to grips with. And let me just tell you where we're going next week. Romans 9 says Jacob I loved Esau I hated. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? What's this whole thing of hardening Pharaoh's heart? What's the issue of reprobation? Why does God choose some and what does it mean when he doesn't choose others? Does he actively like work in them, unbelief. Those are things we're going to talk about next week. So maybe you have, does anybody have any questions? Okay, so the question is, say to a person that believes they use their free will to come to God. Well, let's just talk about it experientially. Okay, let's, let's take theology out of it for a minute. When you, what, what language do you use? 
I received Christ. I accepted Christ. I trusted Christ. So on an experiential level, we did choose to come to Christ. The question is not, did you choose Christ? The question is, why did you choose Christ? Did you, ju- did you choose Christ because when presented the gospel, you, used your, you, ch- you chose freely out of your own libertarian free will when presented, and I came because I came out of my free will, or did you choose because God chose you to come? So what I would say to a person is, <laughs> how nicely would you say this? I would ask them, Ask them to define free will. What do they mean by free will? Do they believe the will is in bondage? Or the will is somehow, do they believe that we have true free will and, and, and some biblical support for that? I don't know if that answers your question, Andrew. Or okay. No man can come. So let's ask the question, why did you come? If Jesus says no one can come, do they say that they were drawn and they cooperated? I would just ask the question, okay, John 6, 44, no man can come unless the Father drew. Did the Father draw you? And if so, could you resist that drawing? And was it a cooperative effort when he drew you that you used your free will to get yourself all the way? I would take him to that passage and say, how do you understand this drawing? And why can't I come unless he draws me? What's, what's preventing me from coming unless I'm drawn? I just take him to John 6. I think all the answers are in John 6. John 6, 37 through 44 answers like a lot of these questions. I don't know if that helps, Andrew. Okay. Any questions on Fass book? I know you're dying to ask questions, and you're not going to offend me. I know this is a controversial topic. You don't, you can be totally, you can say, I, I, I totally disagree with you, Pastor Sean, and that'd be fun. Yeah, Shauna. I mean, it could be the 144,000, but if you went... Okay, <laughs> okay, I'm not laughing at the... I'm just laughing, that's a big question. So, Revelation chapter 7. I can answer this in five minutes. You ready for me to answer this in five minutes? Okay. So, the book of Revelation is a symbolic book. It's meant to be read symbolically, not literally. So that's what we need to understand first of all. So the 144,000 is not a literal number of Jews that are saved during the tribulation. It is a symbolic number of all believers of all time. And so Revelation 7, the 144,000, the first part of Revelation chapter 7 is told from the earthly perspective of this group that are sealed on their foreheads. The second half of chapter seven says a group multitude that no one could count. It's the same group, but told from the heavenly perspective. So it's a parallel, the 144,000 equals a number that no man can count. They're both, 144,000 is just a metaphorical way of saying a huge number. Okay, so you got Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups that, and even some dispensational groups that limit that to Jews saved during the tribulation time they limit that number, like more during the tribulation time. The, the, the reason why some people think that, some people automatically think God selects a small few just because they don't like the idea that God chooses. They automatically think it has to be small. Now, 
empirically looking at the world, do you see more saved people or more lost people? Probably more lost people. Now, just because there's more lost people doesn't mean that that number's small. It's a number that no man can count. Myriads upon myriads, millions upon millions. We don't know what the number is, but it's not a small few. A small, and they make it sound like there's a small select few like the Marines, and you can only get in by being, no, it's unconditional election in the sense that there's nothing you did to get in. It was simply God choosing you, and so it's not, you, you're not elect because there was something special about you. As a matter of fact, there was nothing special about you. You deserved hell, and God chose to choose you anyway. So if you got in, it wasn't because you were great. It was because God was merciful. Does that answer your question, Sean? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's different reasons why people, yeah. I know I answered that revelation question real quick, but you have to, um, I almost have to build out a whole revelation study to get to that point. <laughs> Any other questions? Now, let me make this very clear. The doctrine of predestination is not a dogma. Does that make sense? It's not an absolute essential that one must believe in order to be a Christian or determines whether you're going to go to heaven or not. This is a doctrine that you can agree to disagree upon. Now, I happen to think that there's a more biblical view than the other view. But like I said, we can agree to disagree on this as a secondary issue and not make a mountain out of a molehill. So while it is important, it's not ultimate. Does that make sense? It's like your house. When somebody comes to your house and you invite them in, what's the first thing they see? They see the furniture and they see the, you know, your, your walls and they, they sit at your kitchen table. And what do you do? You go turn the light on so you can see. And let's say you go into the kitchen and you turn the faucet on. Okay. Election predestination is like the wiring and the plumbing in your house. You don't see it, but it needs to be there to make it. What's more important is the house. Okay. What's more important is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Telling people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what kind of behind the scenes makes it work is predestination. It's not the focus, but it needs to be there behind the scenes. The main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can't have one without the other, but one's more important than the other. Does, does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't make sense. I don't know. All right, you guys ready to pray? I'm just wait. You sure you had no questions? I thought this would generate a lot of controversy. All right, let's pray. Father, we do want to um, end tonight with awe and worship and most of all, humility. Lord, we know there was nothing in us that moved you or caused you or, or motivated you to choose us. Because we know our own sin, we know our own depravity, and never in a million years could we ever be clean enough or 
saintly enough or holy enough to be worthy of your salvation. And so, Lord, thank you that you chose us, not because we were deserving, but because you were loving. That in eternity past, you foresaw us, you foreknew us, you chose us, you loved us, you elected us, and you gave us to Jesus. And thank you that at a point in time, we came. And as we've come, you'll never cast us out. You'll raise us up on the last day. And we can rest in, in our salvation from first to last, Lord. So thank you for holding us in your grip. Thank you for being our great Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.